tonight, time to get in the word. Isaiah 53, the last sermon on Isaiah 53. I, I know I said I was going to move on, but I can't. I have to do this. I'll explain why moment. If you need a Bible, these folks will give you one. Isaiah 53. We're looking at the last three verses of this fourth servant song of Isaiah. I want to tell you, uh, I I was going on to Isaiah 54 because it's such an exciting chapter. And I I wanted to just kind of give Isaiah 53 a rest. I didn't want to do the last three stanzas. I thought I'd done enough with the, the text. And uh, Michelle and I hurried back from uh, San Diego to uh, officiated a wedding. Um, And uh, Calabasas, I think it was, or where was it? Uh, Topanga. Topanga. Who who was there? Oh, there you are. It was in Topanga. And I I hurried back to get to the wedding. It started for just barely made it. I shaved in the car. Dry shave hurt. Um, (laughs) And and, and I I get there. I get my suit on and... and, um, go in to officiate the wedding and there was the groom and I took him aside and he's had this resurgence of faith and his his bride is just a delightful member of our congregation. She loves the Lord and I'm having a little talk with him before the, the wedding and as I'm talking to him, God just hammers me. He says, Rob, I want you to finish Isaiah 53. It's all about this. And I'm looking around and the whole wedding as I'm officiating it, every part of it's hitting me in, a, in relation to Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. And I moved by it, and I just, I just said, okay, Lord, yes. And then last night, I left to, to go study a little bit more and told Michelle I was heading out. And I was trying to go to 54. God kept bringing me back to 53. And I'm thrilled that we're going to finish Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. And it, you're going to see a picture of what I saw yesterday. And um, I hope you're blessed. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Isaiah 53, we'll pick up at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Actually, another translation is crush him, meaning the father to the son. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see, his, he shall see the labor of his soul or the tumult of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have emphasized upon my heart the importance of this passage. And I pray, Lord, that as we examine it through the illustration that you opened my eyes to yesterday, that we would all be touched. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us into all truth, and we ask, Lord, that you'd bless us. And God, I just love the picture of with all my heart, yes. With all my heart, yes. And Holy Spirit, I I pray that you'd bring that to remembrance to all the folks who hear that towards the end of the message. With all my heart, yes. And so we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So as I was examining uh, this passage of Scripture in the light of the illustration the Lord had given me at the wedding, it actually had gone back a couple of weeks 
when my son um, flew to uh, Arizona uh, for um, uh, to be a witness of a young man proposing uh, to his girlfriend. And uh, the, the, the young lady happens to be the sister of Daniel, my son's uh, girlfriend. So Daniel's girlfriend's sister was getting proposed to Jaylee. She's actually here, uh, right over there. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and her now fiance, Mike, uh, proposed to her. Mike uh, is a record-breaking uh, quarterback uh, who played at Arizona State. And uh, he had proposed to her on the field, and they, it was a big Megatron thing and cool. And Danny's like, Dad, I don't know how to up that. I go, son, don't even try. Just, <laughs> just let it go. And, um, and, and yet I watched as, as uh, I, I saw the video through Jensen shaking hands. She goes, oh, my God, this is so awesome. So I'm like, <laughs> and I'm trying to make it out and everything. And my wife's going, see, look at it. We were driving at the time. I'm trying to look over at it. And, but I saw the part where Mike went down on one knee. And, and that is a very profound, and it took me back 28 years ago, 29 years ago, when I did the same with Michelle. And I'll take you through that story later, but I, I wanted to share with you that as that had occurred, and then uh, officiating the wedding yesterday, I took the young man aside, and he was, he was dressed in his wedding outfit, his tuxedo. And I started to explain to him, I said, um, do you know why you're dressed in black and you're wearing a tuxedo? And he said, I don't know, formal wear? I go, no, not really. It's because you're a corpse. (laughs) He looked at me like, what are you talking about? I said, check it out, man. You and I are going to go down after the parents are seated, and we're going to go down, and we don't even get to walk down the aisle. We're going to go around the outside, and and typically you enter through the kitchen door, and you and I are going to stand there, and you're going to be like, doo-dee-doo-dee-doo-dee-doo, and all the other guys are going to be dressed in black because they're mourning for you. And, and you'll be there, and, and, the, and you're waiting for the bride, and then they're going to bring all the bridesmaids down, and, and the, the, the bride knows how to do it. I mean, she's going to have all the bridesmaids dressed in ugly bridesmaids' outfits, and so that she just radiates. You know how they do that. I'm just saying. And, and so they're all lined up, and then she comes down, and, and they're all willing to suffer the fashion faux pas because they love her, and they want her to be the center of it. And, and, and you're going to be standing there, and she's going to come to you. And I said, you, you don't understand the significance of it. And I took him through it. And as I was taking him through it, it just kept resonating. Because if you look at the passage of Scripture, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or to crush him. Please the Lord to bruise him or to crush him. And he has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The picture to me, and and a lot of folks don't understand this, is that marriage is a microcosmic picture of Christ's love for the church. And so what you have is you have the bride that represents the church. Washed as white as snow, radiant and beautiful. Sins cast as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. We have no recollection or memory of any failure. You are radiant and beautiful and the Lord sees you in his righteousness. And you're coming down that aisle to meet the groom. And who's the groom? The groom is Christ. Why is the bride radiant? Because the groom has died. He's been crushed. It, the, the sin has been poured out upon him. And, and, and the reconciliation between the two 
having the same mind, let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. This is that phileo type of love, a mutual love, having the same mind, being of like mind. And the two come together and become one flesh. And they're united, not only in body and soul, but in spirit. That this agreement occurs. And it's even deeper than that because this is the Christian picture of marriage. And and every bit of the wedding service is symbolic. There's symbolism in all of it. And relating that to the young man and pointing this out, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief. Um, The old joke, (laughs) it's not very good, but (laughs) the father and the son were attending a wedding when the son, the young boy asked the question of the father. He says, "Why, why is the bride dressed in white? And he said, because it's the happiest day of her life. He says, well, then why is he dressed in black? <laughs> why does the groom wear black? Why does the groom wear black? And, a, and with symbolism of a Christian service, and it, it has been done for centuries, it's, it is a depiction. And, and, and the idea is they want the world to see Christ and what is taking place here. That, that it is a joyous event, but he is wearing black because he represents death, death to himself, and to be alive to Christ, to serve his wife, to give his life as a ransom. You see that? Isn't that profound? It was designed by ministers that have gone long before me, and I have the privilege to officiate in the symbolism of what they w- wisely assembled. And, and here you have it. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief. Right here in this passage, in verse 10, you have a clear, very clear explanation of the crucifixion of Christ. Right there. This is a very clear depiction of the crucifixion of Christ. It was God the Father who crushed his son. He crushed him. It's a depiction of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave He initiated, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. And he gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. This boundless love that God has for a lost and dying world, that he would give his son. Romans 8.32, Paul the apostle wrote, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He gave himself. And here you have the groom giving himself for the bride to say, here I am. And it it was the father's will to crush the son. That's a hard one. You can't drink your tea and have your morning devotion and skip over that. You've got to stop and take a look at that. His death was not a, his death was not in the hands of wicked men, but actually in the hands of God the Father. Now, that doesn't absolve those who killed the son from responsibility, but they weren't in control of the situation. God knows the beginning from the end and all points in between, and he can work all things together for good with those who love and are called according to his purpose, even the crushing of his son through wicked hands. God brought the greatest good. He brought the greatest good out of the greatest wickedness of man. Only the Lord can do that. He takes the ashes and he makes them beautiful. He takes our our weakness and he makes them strength. Everything put in his hand is blessed. He takes all of the failures of our life and when we give them to him, he assembles this tapestry of beauty that is phenomenal. And why, we, would, might, we might ask, why would God be pleased to crush him 
He was without sin. We know that, right? Why would the father be pleased to crush his son? And, and the Lord Jesus would say, and not contradict the father, he would say in John eight twenty nine, I always do those things that please my father. And remember what he said and we studied last week. No man, Jesus said, no man takes my life. I willingly lay it down. So he steps into this picture and the, and the father was pleased to crush him. And the pleasure of the Lord, the pleasure of the father uh, in this act comes not from the fact that his son was crushed. He didn't take pleasure in the pain his son suffered. But from the accomplishing a good far greater than the terrible suffering that his son would endure. Did you hear that? Look around the room. This is a room filled with men and women whose lives have been redeemed by the sacrifice of the father's son, which brings the father great joy. It wasn't the suffering his son endured. It was the accomplishing of your deliverance and mine that brought him that joy. That's why it pleased the father. You need to meditate on that. He didn't take pleasure in crushing his son, but in the full and sufficient sacrifice that his son accomplished in cleansing us of all of our unrighteousness. And he made us resplendent, white as snow, a a bride, beautiful. There's anything prettier than a bride on her wedding day. And through Christ's death penalty, the judgment for sin was paid for. To tell us die, paid in full. I like what one author says. He says, God took pleasure not in doing it, but because of the end result that it would accomplish. Had the debts of our behavior gone unpaid, they would stand forever between us and a just God. If this were sinful man and this were a holy God and this were the the chasm between the two, the cross behind me would be the bridge. That sacrifice would allow you then to traverse the gap, traverse the abyss and be reconciled with a holy God. Why is that important? Why in a world that has moved towards secular progressivism, removing God from the equation, from our governmental and our educational and our arts and entertainment areas, where we are brave new world of throwing off restraint and these things that God has stated, why is it that we would still engage in obsolete ideas like marriage? Because even if you believe that this is only a physical world and there is no metaphysical ideas, you still are trapped. And my wife and I watched this movie with these two Nietzsche philosopher couples that they were talking about the stupidity of love and how it doesn't exist. And at the end, they're together. Like, well, let's just try it anyways. What a tragic tale of misery. But here we have a God who says in his word and in Genesis... He said, let us make man in our image. And he used the word for let us. It's Elohim, which is a description of God, singular plurality or unified diversity. It speaks of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Let us make man in our own image. What God was saying is, I am going to create man the same way as the Godhead. We are relational. And when doing this, and he created man in that image, He went through the creation and he said, after every aspect of creation, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then he gets to the description for why there's marriage. He said, for Adam, there was no help, found a helpmate suitable for him. And man was alone and that was not good. And this is what we hate. 
especially when we want to throw off the constraints of this mythical idea of a God. We just hate being alone. I've done funerals where there's nobody there. Their life was just miserable and nobody wanted to be a part of their life. And the the great fear of dying alone. We were created for relationship. We strive for that. We we want to be connected. And and people are difficult to relate to because they're just like you. (laughs) And me. And, and, and we, we bring into relationships all of the darkness and all of the deception and all the things we don't want anyone to know. We want to put our best foot forward. And when you spend time with someone, they start to realize all of your quirks and all your failures. And then they're emphasized and they're magnified and the person judges you and, you. and then you just get into their bickering and then you just don't want to deal with it anymore. And I'd rather be alone than to have to contend and have to be examined. And so we create ways to do that. We, we judge people and keep them at a distance with our legalism. And that keeps them out of our lives. Or, or we're just snippy and we're, we're short and we're rude. We're gossipy. We do whatever we can so that nobody examines us. And then we find ourselves all alone. All alone. And yet, here we see that Jesus came to pay a debt he did not owe. Because we owed a debt we could not pay. And he reconciles us so that we can have a relationship with the God who created us. You see, Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said that everyone is created with a God-shaped void. And it's until you've been reconciled to God that you don't fully understand who you are. You go through life, and and, and I've, I've been... I remember one lady in particular, Dr. Crilly, who... Her husband died. She was a widow. She had no children. The only people that surrounded her at the end of her life were her caregivers that she paid for. And I told her one day, I said, Alice, you'll only be surrounded with people that you pay to be with you because you don't treat people very nice. And the way you treat people, it's a wonder you have any friends. And she tested me. She tested me. And her biggest fear was to be alone. And yet, the great joy for me is I'm not alone. Some of you know what it's like to be in a crowded room and be all alone. God's created us for relationship. And why is it that somebody like Elizabeth Taylor would be married so many times? Why is it that somebody would go through that? Because in us, we struggle, regardless of your ideological belief, you struggle with being alone. And as your heart is still beating while you're on this earth, you have no idea what the future holds. And you hope that there's a sweet release of death where there's no longer loneliness or sadness. But the reality is there is an afterlife. And it'll be one of eternal loneliness or one of relationship of love. And it's dependent on where you want to spend that. God has made it in such a way that we would be reconciled to him. And as I was looking at this, It said, it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief. And you shall make his soul an offering for sin and he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You see, here's here's what happens. If you want to be alone, if you want to be alone, then just make it about you. Isolate yourself. 
Only put people around you that, that are pleasant and blow sunshine your way. And they'll tire of you, so pay them accordingly. And if they don't, fire them and get somebody else who will always smile. And as this occurs, the only way for you to produce fruit, the only way for you to produce a life that has friends, the Bible says, any man who desires friends must himself first be friendly. You must initiate. You must initiate if you're going to find friends. And the only way to initiate to find friends is you have to die to yourself because people are difficult to get along with. Yes? Anyone who's married understands this? You have to die to yourself to understand the other person. And this is a perfect picture. Jesus said in John 12, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, then it bears much fruit. That's what the groom does. He initiates by dying. Now, men, when they're marrying, they love, especially in the premarital counseling, and they love to come to the part in Ephesians that says, wives, submit to your husbands. They love that. They love this. Not realizing their role that says, as Christ loved the church, so love your wife. Real simple for the man. Die. And then let Christ live. He's an amazing husband. You stink. Let him live in you. And that's the call to the man. The man says, well, but it says wives submit unto your husbands. And so the wife submit. And I've said this often, and I imagine it insults and and. You know, I don't seek to mock you, but, but I will be candid. If any man says to his wife, wife, submit, that is a very weak man. And the reason why I say that is because, do you know why she's submitting? Not out of obligation, but out of adoration. She's willingly coming to you because you've laid your life down for her. You see, the husband initiates, not that we love God, but that he first loved us. He comes through the kitchen door and stands and waits for you. And he initiates. And husbands, you're not a thermometer. You are a thermostat. You set the spiritual temperature of the room. And for your family, you don't demand what it is you're unwilling to to provide. There's no submission to the Lord. Why do you expect submission from those that you are overseeing and that you're to care for and to bathe in the water of the word that you don't obey? Die. That's the dress. That's the call. I remember when I asked for Michelle's hand in marriage. And and I I said to her in Fresno under a willow tree in a man-made lake, I got down on one knee as I watched Mike do with Jaylee, down on one knee. I was initiating. I was declaring, I am yielding my life to you. Will you marry me? She said, yes, with all my heart. Yes, with all my heart. I initiated, she responded. The Lord initiated, he was, he was bruised, he was crushed. He cleansed us of all unrighteousness. He did this 
so that we would be cleansed and as white as snow. He would forget all of our failures and our weaknesses. God was in Christ, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He wanted this union. He wanted to bring this relationship to man. He went through grief. It was God's victory. It wasn't Satan's triumph or man's triumph. God the, God the Son and the Father worked together to redeem us. That's what I love about the bride coming down with her father. The father understands the son will die. The father cares for the bride. He entrusts the bride to this groom. He will care for you. He will cleanse you. He will protect you. He will love you. It's profound. It's powerful. Jesus was saying, He was the one kernel of wheat on his way to the cross to die, be buried and resurrected. This would lead to a great harvest of souls now and in future generations to come. And here you have the groom. It wasn't the one yesterday. But there he is in his dark suit, smiling, not realizing he's about to die. (laughs) Tim, where are you going? (laughs) this is hard for some men to take (laughs) same suit he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied and by his knowledge my righteous servants shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities You see, what happens is he bears the iniquities and and the Lord, when it says, because he poured out his soul unto death in the next passage, it means that there was nothing left. He had poured it all out. Every drop went out. There was nothing more that he could give. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son. The wedding, interestingly enough, and I love this picture Look at her face, and there he is waiting to serve her. She's walking down an aisle that is white, resplendent, beautiful, washed, cleansed, beautiful, radiant. And the symbolism in Christendom for the marriage comes out of Genesis 15. It's this idea of a covenant. It's where you, you, you would cut a covenant, and the word in Hebrew is berith. Berith means um, to cut. Literally, to cut, to cut a covenant. And in Genesis 15, God had made a promise, and he said, I want to cut a covenant with you, Abraham. And he said, here's what we're going to do. I want you to take, and he listed all the animals in Genesis 15. He says, I want, to cu- I want you to cut them in half and lay the carcass one aside the other. So on this side would be the head of the bull, and this would be the tail of the bull, and this would be the head of the goat, and this would be the tail of the goat. And it would go all the way down, and then the blood between the two carcasses would pour into the center. And then in cutting a covenant, they take a belt and wrap it around themselves, or they exchange belts, or they exchange loops, and, and they, would, they would cut their hand, they would both grab the hand, let the blood mingle, and they would walk through the carcass pieces, and they would say, if either of us breaks this promise, may this happen to us. I promise you my life. So Abraham, obedient, 
cuts the carcasses, lays them out. The blood's poured in the middle in, in Genesis 15, and he's waiting for the Lord to show up. And God doesn't show. And all of a sudden, the, the birds and the ravens start coming down, and they're starting to go after the carcasses. And, and Abraham is shooing them away and saying, get away, get away, get away. And finally, he's just waiting and waiting, and, and he's exhausted, and he falls asleep. And when he falls asleep, it says in the passage that a fire pot representing the Lord passed through the pieces. And what God said is, I don't need you to keep my promise. I'm going to keep my promise even though you'll fail. And you would see in Genesis 16, Hagar and Ishmael, he immediately fails. But God said, this is my doing. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to redeem you. You trust me, and that will be accredited to you as righteousness. And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God passed through the pieces. So when you come to a wedding and you see all these things, the wedding ceremony itself is the picture of this blood covenant. The, the seating of the family, the bride and the groom. It's the separation of the parts of the animal. I don't know who the head or the tail is, but I'm just saying that. <laughs> The center aisle or the white runner represents the meeting ground or the pathway between the animal pieces where the blood covenant would be established, where the the two in agreement would walk. And the white runner symbolizes the holy ground where the two lives are joined as one by God. You see this in Exodus chapter 3 and also Matthew 19. The seating of the parents of the bride and the groom were ultimately responsible for discerning God's will concerning the choice of a spouse for their children. The wedding tradition of seating the parents in their place of prominence is meant to recognize the responsibility of the couple's union. The groom enters first. This is Ephesians chapter 5. He reveals that earthly marriages are a picture of the church's union with Christ. God initiated the relationship through Christ. God called and came for his bride, the church, and Christ is the groom. The father escorts and gives away the bride. This is a Jewish tradition. The white wedding dress, it symbolizes in Revelation 19, 7 through 8, that the, the Christ clothes his bride, the church, in his own righteousness as a garment of fine linen, bright and clean. The bridal veil, uh, these, these are all listed in this wedding ceremony and the exchanging of the rings and the joining of the hands. And it's profound and powerful. And, and as I reflected on the wedding, I was so touched. And um, Chelsea, just stunning, stunning. And, and, and seeing this couple and their lives together, it, it took me back immediately, 28 years ago. And I, I remember last night when my wife and I went to go see the Carol King thing at the Pantages Theater. We were there kind of till late. And uh, friends of ours have a place there by the Pantages Theater, and they invited us to come, and they had eight tickets, and the two of them, and Michelle and myself, and another couple, and then these two young fellas, uh, Ryan and Daniel. Uh, and they showed up in late 20s, early 30s, both single, strappingly handsome, funny, gregarious, both believing Christian young men. And they come and they're like, Pastor, you know, if we come to your church, you're going to find us a, a, you know, godly Christian woman. I'm like, well, you know, the difficult done immediately, the impossible by appointment only. You're going to need to make an appointment. Um, <laughs> but we had some fun with it. And I, I looked at these guys and I thought they're, and they asked a question that was interesting because one of them, I think, had gone through a difficult breakup, a relationship. And he asked a question of me that uh, elicited a response of my testimony. And, and Michelle and I both shared. 
and we've done this before, and, and he, they really didn't realize what they were asking because it's, it's involved. They said, do you believe that there's a perfect person out there for us and that God orchestrates this and, and brings them to us as Adam slept and God brought Eve to Adam? And, and I said, yeah, I do. And they said, well, explain. I said, well, I'll give you our testimony. He said, oh, please, how did you meet? And I said, well, interestingly enough, and I didn't go through the whole thing, and a lot of you have heard it, so I'm not going to belabor it. But I said, I was engaged to be married to someone else. Immediately, I caught their attention. Oh. <laughs> and I said, and she was pregnant with my child. Oh. Were you a Christian? Yes, I was a Christian. I was a Christian. And I had failed miserably. Neither of my parents were Christians, but I was, and I had failed miserably. And... Um, I knew that we needed to get married. And I really wanted to do right by the Lord. I had lived my whole life doing what he didn't want, and I wanted to honor him. He had given me his life. I wanted to give him mine. And I had made a mess, and I just said, God, can you clean this up? And I said, I'll get married. I'll do whatever's necessary. Lord, just fix this. And, and I remember I drove to go tell my parents that I was getting married. My parents were prejudiced, and the girl was Hispanic, and I was the last great white hope for the family, and... And my, my dad listening to me talk about how we're going to get married and on and on. And my dad says, stop, stop. You don't need to do this. You're both young. You have your life ahead of you. Why would you get married now? You, you have your careers and things. You can do this later. And just because there's a pregnancy doesn't mean you need to get married. I said, the, 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 the baby needs a mom and a dad. Abort this fetus. I said, it's not a fetus, it's a child. He says, it's a fetus. I, I'm, I said, dad, I'm not going to have this conversation with you. He said, you don't need to make this mistake. And bless my my father's heart, he was giving me the best advice he could with what he knew. He meant well, but he didn't know the whole counsel of God's word. And, And with his limited understanding of how life operates, he was trying to guide a son that he loved relationally. And I said, Dad, I can't do that. It's my relationship with God that is paramount, and God This is a baby. It's been fearfully and wonderfully made, the scripture says, knitted together in its mother's womb. I can't do that. No, that's not. I said, that's what the scripture said. Well, I'm not having that. I said, I didn't want to have it either. You brought it up. And he, he finally was furious. And he said, let me make this clear. You marry that woman and give birth to that child. You will never step foot in this house again. And I turned to the two young men. And it was at Michelle's kind of prodding because she had kind of set the stage because they had asked a question I didn't quite understand her answer and she turned it to that and I realized this was this was the end to drive the Mack truck through so on Michelle's cue I turned to them and I said I believe at that moment the perfect will of God was laid before me the scripture says seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us. And he's saying, if you love me, you'll obey me. And I said, God, I love you. I want you to have my life. I don't want to lose my family. But I don't want to lose you. And the ultimatum's been laid. And it was going to cost me a lot. And I said, I love you, and I'm going to miss you. And I walked out. That seed died that day and was buried. 
Because the primary relationship is me and the Lord. Everything else will come in time. I said, God, I want what you want. And I told those young men, yeah, there is a perfect will of God when you walk in obedience to the times where he lays it all on the line and the covenant is before you and the carcass is there. And if you're willing, he's able. I had no idea what I was doing when I walked out, but I did. And they were true to their word, no phone calls, no nothing. And it was through the course of that 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 I found out when we were coming down from a concert up in Hume Lake, I'm driving down the mountain. My fiance asked me to pull the car over. She takes off her engagement ring. She says, I slept with Steve, who was the college pastor who discipled me and led me to the Lord. He was married, had three kids. It was insane. And my head was swirling. And I just remember saying, God, I don't get this. I just sensed him always saying, trust me. And I knew that this is what I had to do and I wasn't going to waver from it. And we waited and and I I told her, I said, we're not going to get married because you knew this long before and I'm not going to base it on a lie, but I will be a good father to that child. And the baby was born and back then you couldn't, you know, find out whose baby it was until after the baby was born if you wanted to protect the child health-wise. So the baby was born, they took the blood test. It wasn't mine, it was his. Nobody believed it. We took another blood test, it was still his. But at that point, at that point, I remember when we were waiting through the pregnancy for the baby to be born, I didn't have a friend in the world. The church was called Grace Community Church. Any church that has grace on the outside of the building doesn't have it on the inside. It was, it was a sweet fellowship, Pastor Randy Brandon, that's not fair, but I, I'm just saying there were a number of folks in there were like, oh, well, ah, isn't he a sinner? And there were a few of them like that. And you know, they were right. I just didn't want to be reminded of it continually. And, and, and in addition, going through that, I started to own what I was responsible for and just giving it to the Lord and, and, and taking responsibility for my actions before God Almighty. And it, 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 you grow up quick as a young man. And people didn't know what to do with me or how to resolve it. I couldn't talk to the pastor who had been my confidant because he's getting ready to have, you know, and it's just, it was insane. And in the midst of all of it, a, a, a young lady that I'd known for years that every time I thought of her, I thought she'd be a great person to marry, but she wasn't a Christian. She'd come to Christ at Cal Poly. She called me on my birthday as she would do every year. And she, she tells the story that she was thinking when I called, uh, I'd be afraid that he'd be married. And, um, and she called in her voice and I go, no, I'm not married. It's a long story. I shared it with her. I'm like, this, this will be the end of this friendship. To the contrary, uh, she became my best friend. And I love the definition I read in an article on the London Times when they look for the definition of friend. The definition of friend that one was, a friend is when the whole world goes out, they come in. And that was Michelle. And, and she stayed with me through the entire pregnancy. The baby was born. The blood test, the first person I called wasn't anyone in my family or any of my friends. It was my best friend, Michelle. I said, it's his And I couldn't wait to marry her. And I remember realizing at that moment, God, when I walked out of that house, that's when God gave me. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. When I gave him my life, he gave me life. And there is anyone more filled with life than Michelle. And I'll never forget, 29 years ago, kneeling beside that man-made lake under this weeping willow tree in Fresno 
I'm not a real romantic. And, and, I, and I bought a ring from China. She wasn't getting a bargain here. I mean, if you see Jay Lee's ring, you'll realize Michelle got ripped off. And I knelt and I was nervous and I initiated. I initiated. And I said, will you, I want to give you my life. Will you give me yours? Will you marry me? And she said, yes, with all my heart. Now, I'm no longer alone. And that day I began to die and we die continually because it's an active participation in allowing Christ to live as we die. And it hasn't been all roses and beauty and there's been struggles. But I have never been happier. And I say that to you because I initiated, Michelle responded. For some of you, you're not a Christian. You're, you're trying to figure this life out like my dad was doing apart from God. You don't believe you were created in the image of God. You don't believe you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You don't know what to do with this metaphysical concept of love and desire and loneliness. And you're trying to navigate and, and you don't know what's going to happen when you die and things are getting difficult. And the Lord is saying to you, I want to be reconciled. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to bless you. I, 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 I want you to know me as I know you. Amen. I want you to have this fullness of life. I want you to know who you've always been designed to be. And that would be the Lord taking a knee in front of you and saying, I give you my life. And be like you being under the willow tree, looking at God and saying, no. Had Michelle said no, it would have crushed me. The Lord had already been crushed when he took care of your sin. What crushes him now is that you don't want the forgiveness. You don't think you need it. You don't want the relationship. For some of you, you have responded to his proposal. And you have said yes. But the bruising and the crushing hasn't really moved you to love him the way he loves you. Had the act of me kneeling before Michelle and saying, will you marry me? And her saying yes. If that was the only act of her life was to say yes and never want to have a relationship with me from that day forward, the marriage would be miserable. But every day... I attempt to lay my life down and she responds by laying her life down. I initiate, she responds. Most of the time, she's the one initiating, sadly. I try to be the first to say I'm sorry. I try to be the first to reconcile. I say that to you because right now before you, as we have concluded this fourth servant song, the Lord has died for you He's washed you. That's you if when he took a knee and said, will you be reconciled to me? I give you my life. Will you give me yours? And there's only one response. Yes, Lord, with all my heart. Then this is yours. It'll be the happiest day of your life. And the result of it, the scripture says, is that you have a portion with the great and life goes on and you're no longer lonely. 
you fully are realized and you realize fully. I have to say, I was ready to move on to 54. God said, stop at 53. And he took Chelsea's wedding and he just hammered me with it. And I have to tell you, he is asking you, I give you my life. Will you give me yours? And I implore you. One response. Yes, with all my heart. And life will get immeasurably better for you and everyone who knows you because you'll be a lot more pleasant to be around because Christ is way cooler than you. And he'll make you a better husband and a better wife and a better sibling and a better child, a better employee, a better employer. It will revolutionize the world when you say yes with all my heart.